we continue our study in the book of Galatians. We go verse by verse. I think it could be helpful to think in terms of a theme. And the theme is that of story. I don't want to oversell or overplay this. I'm reminded of the saying that to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, and seeing story in this, perhaps I see it everywhere. But I do see it as a possible thread that runs through what we've studied thus far in the book of Galatians. In the first two chapters, Paul tells his story. And he does this to establish two truths. First of all, that his apostleship was not from men or by man. It came from God. Secondly, his gospel was not from men. And I've mentioned before that Paul's trying to fight something here. The first is, if, he can, if his authority can be challenged as the messenger, then the message itself can be challenged as not being authentic and therefore having no authority. Paul wants to make it clear to the Galatians that the gospel of grace is the message. And he takes great pains to make this case, even including the public rebuking of Peter and Antioch. In chapter 3, Paul asks the Galatians, in essence, what is your story? If you look at the beginning of chapter 3, he, he turns to the Galatians with language that is quite harsh. You foolish Galatians. And as I mentioned last week in the New English Bible, it has you stupid Galatians. The message, Peterson's paraphrase, has you crazy Galatians. I'm afraid that the harshness of this language might distract us from what Paul does next. When after making a statement, he then asks the Galatians a series of questions that if they answer these questions, it in fact tells their story. I want to review quickly and, and briefly. He begins by saying, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And Paul's not simply engaged in name calling here. He's rather putting the blame where it belongs. You see, they might say, well, Paul, you know, these guys came into town and they totally deceived us. You know, they hoodwinked us. They bewitched us. There is something to that. But before we get to that, Paul says, you guys did this. You, you foolish, you foolish Galatians. They bear responsibility for having turned from the gospel. Paul then says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And here we are reminded of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, who had turned from the gospel to human wisdom, the wisdom of the world. The Galatians have turned from the gospel to the law. Paul wrote to them, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul says to the Galatians, I would like to learn just one thing from you. While there is one question, it is followed by three more. And here the story of the Galatians comes out. Did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? When Paul went to Galatia, he preached the gospel with the power of the spirit. And those who believed put their trust in Jesus, the crucified Messiah. That is, they believed what they had heard from Paul. And those who believed received the Holy Spirit. From this, we can also, I think, safely assume that Paul did not preach to them observance of the law. They did not hear that from Paul. In verse 3, Paul wants them to think through the issue and not to be foolish, you know, not to be mistaken or to use their minds in the wrong way or to be deficient in their understanding. 
Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? In other words, this, this is not logical. It does not make sense. Are you so foolish to think this? Again, the New English Bible is rather direct. Can it be that you are so stupid? In verse 4, their story continues. In verse 3, they had heard the gospel. Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? We know that Paul suffered for preaching the gospel in Galatia, and it seems likely that the Galatians also suffered for being Christians. And they suffered much. He said that you had suffered so much. Paul asks one final question before putting the finishing or putting the finishing touches on the story. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Not only did the Galatians receive the Holy Spirit, but evidence of this was seen in miracles that had taken place among them. So in reviewing their story, we would say that their lives as Christians, as children of God, began with the Spirit. They had received the Spirit. They had suffered for the gospel. There had been miracles done among them. And none of these, none of these had anything to do with the law or observing the law. So their story was one of faith, of belief, not of observing the law. But then certain individuals came up from Jerusalem, and these men are trying to change their story. They see the story as lacking something, observance of the law. To counter these men, Paul brings in another story, and that is in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 3, the story of Abraham. And regarding the story of Abraham, Paul quotes two passages from Genesis, from two incidents in the life of Abraham. The first is from Genesis 15. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God made a promise to Abraham. A son coming from your own body will be their heir or be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. When God made this promise to Abraham, Abraham believed. In the language of the New Testament, Abraham had faith. He trusted God and what God had to say. The second incident is taken from Genesis chapter 9. This is the first time we actually hear about Abraham in the Bible. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It is this last statement to which Paul refers here in Galatians 3. All nations will be blessed through you. As I said last week, I would argue that the men from Jerusalem would have preferred to quote the first part. That is, I will make you into a great nation. And then say to the Gentile Christians, if you want to be part of this great nation, you have to be circumcised and you have to keep the law. Paul sees it very, very differently. He sees it as indicating that God had intended all along to save the Gentiles. And he would do so as he had done with Abraham, through faith. That is, if they believed God, if they trusted him, what he had promised, then they would become his people. There is something that we didn't talk about last Sunday I want to bring up now. 
And that is that the men from Jerusalem probably were not real happy that Paul had brought up the story of Abraham. They would have much preferred the story of Moses. Because as we will see the Lord willing next week, uh, Abraham lived more than four centuries before the law. And these Jewish men from Jerusalem are all about the law. And in a sense, Paul is pulling a fast one by going around the law and going back to Abraham, the father of faith. They would have much preferred for Paul to talk about Moses, much more than about Abraham. One writer puts it this way, to appeal to Abraham, as it were, over the head of Moses, was simply to ignore the main part of the Jewish story, the heart of Jewish practice, a key element of Jewish theology. Yeah, don't, don't start with Abraham, start with Moses. But Paul knows precisely what he's doing. And he will engage them on this in a few verses. Where we pick it up today is verse number 10. And again, I see the thread of a story here. Look, if you would, at verse number 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Uh, I must make a confession here. I don't sit around when I'm preparing my sermon, imagining that you all are out there questioning me and looking for mistakes in the sermon. Um, I do recognize, though, that sometimes I may say something you've not heard before and it may throw you. Um, It's like verse number 10. See, I think um, when we hear this verse, most people, and I would include myself, our minds begin to think in a particular way, uh, in this case, a very legal way, you know, that this is the law. This is based on what Moses uh, said to Israel in Deuteronomy 27. Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. Then all the people shall say, Amen. In a few verses, in verse 13, we will hear, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, which is taken from Deuteronomy 21. And so I think we are tempted to see this in a very legal way, and I would add an impersonal way. This is the law. This is how it is implemented. When, in fact, I think it is part of a story. In reality, what Paul quotes from in Deuteronomy 27 is part of a a two-part scenario in which Israel was supposed to act this out, one might almost call this theater, when they went into Canaan. Once they got over the Jordan River and they had a certain amount of time, they were to go to these two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Cursing, the Mount of Blessing. And six tribes were to go to Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. Six were to go on Mount Gerizim, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And there, in between, the Levites were to read what Moses had written And in chapter 27, we have the curses. Cursed is the man who does not do. And they would go, and then the people would respond, respond, Amen. That is, you're right, we agree with that. In chapter 28, which is the second part of the story, we have the blessings that are spelled out. Interestingly, with the blessings, we don't follow the same pattern. The people don't say, Amen. The, The blessings are listed. Blessed is the man. So what Paul quotes here is not some dry and impersonal law from some legal textbook. It has its roots in the very story of God's people. In fact, being under a curse should not be seen as a legal abstraction, somehow describing an impersonal reaction against evil. 
it is quite personal. The idea of a curse runs from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, all the way to the last verse of the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. You know what happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. Above all the livestock and all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Mm -hmm. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. It's the very beginning. Fast forward to the end of the Old Testament. The last two verses... And in fact, much has been made of the fact that the last two words in the Old Testament are a curse. See, I will send you the great, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Beginning and the end, a curse. And in between, we find it as much. In Genesis chapter 4, the story of Canaan, the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. In Genesis 12, what Paul quotes from, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So what is a curse? What is the big deal? A curse is the personal reaction of God to sin. From the first mention in Genesis 3, in which God curses the serpent and the ground, to the last mention in Malachi chapter 4, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And the promise made to Abraham, I will curse. We should see the curse as something that is Personal. It is God's personal reaction to sin. In this light, what Paul writes in verse number 10 makes perfect sense. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Curses everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. If one believes that the path you should take is that of observing the law, well, you are in fact under a curse. Because if you break One commandment, the curse is God's personal reaction to sin. You have sinned, and God's reaction is a curse. So if you think this is the road I want to take, uh, Paul would say, well, this is the road of the curse. I would remind you, Paul didn't make this up. This comes from Deuteronomy 27. You might say, well, wait a minute, I'm confused. Did not God give the law to Israel? Yes, he did. You might ask then, how can Paul 
correctly, I might add, make it out to be the source of a curse. Well, we need to go back to what we looked at last Sunday, in which God made a promise to Abraham. And the promise was not simply about the Jews, although the Jews would see it that way. It was designed for all the nations. Abraham's descendants were to bring about God's plan of salvation for the rest of the world. That's why there was going to be a family in the first place. That's why this 100-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife were able to produce a child. But something happened to the family. And as a result, to God's plan and God's promise. The physical family of Abraham, the Jews, were blocking God's original intention because they were supposed to be the way through which the gospel would go to the world. But instead, they had sort of blocked the road by insisting, you've got to keep the law. And as we've seen, if that's the path you take, you are under a curse. Uh, we saw it in James. James says if you've broken one commandment, you've broken them all. And a curse is God's reaction to our sin. And so here you have these people saying, keep the law, keep the law, it's the way of life. And Paul says, no, it is in fact the way of a curse. God's promise to Abraham was still good. God still intended to bless the whole world through Abraham's family. The problem was not only Israel, the promise bearers, that they had failed, but that they were getting in the way of this promise being fulfilled. The men from Jerusalem, in many ways representing the Jewish perspective, had gotten off track and they were trying to get the Galatian Christians, come on, follow us. This is the path to take. God gave his law to reveal his nature, to reveal the nature of what it means to be human, and to reveal, if you wish, the roads of the rules of the road. If one does something contrary to the law, there are consequences. The way to live is faith in God. But again, this is not a New Testament thing. This isn't a Paul thing, a new thing. Paul shows this by quoting from the Old Testament. Look, if you would, at verse number 11. Clearly, no one is justified or made right before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law does not make anyone righteous before God. Paul quotes this from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous will live by faith. This is to follow the path of the road that Abraham had taken. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you would follow Abraham, you should take the path of faith, the road of faith. Now we come to verse number 12. And it seems inevitable that when we go verse by verse, that there will be a verse that is more difficult that I struggle with than others. And this week it is verse number 12. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. There are a number of reasons why I really struggle with this verse. First of all, I would argue with Paul that on some level, obeying the law requires faith. That is to say, you believe God gave this law to Moses, Moses brought it down. When you obey the law, in some sense you are saying, I trust that this is the law that God gave to Moses. And in faith I will obey the law. Having said that, I think if a person does not believe, if a person doesn't have faith, but they live according to the law of God, they would have, they'd be a better person, they'd live a better life than someone who does not. I mean, aren't you glad that most of your neighbors do not break the commandment, thou shalt not commit murder? I mean, isn't that a nice thing? 
Uh, Thou shalt not steal. I mean, isn't it a good thing that your neighbors don't break that commandment? Also, some people have put a contrast between law and faith. They say the law is doing and faith is believing. Well, it's a false dichotomy. And as we saw in our study of James, uh, faith is not simply believing. It means acting. In fact, risking. You act because, in fact, you have believed. What helped me to sort of get over this hurdle here at verse number 12 was to contrast verse 11 with verse number 12. In verse 11, the quote from Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. In verse 12, it's from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. The man who does these will live by them. The two words they have in common are will live. What is Paul trying to do? What is he trying to say? What does a quote from Leviticus mean? Israel was given the law on Sinai. But to merely have the law, to merely possess the law is not sufficient. They were to obey the commandments. The language of the quote, they were to do these things. But as Paul has pointed out, this in fact was an impossibility. One failure, one failure was fatal. Imagine that. One, one failure, you break one commandment and you're cursed. You break one and you bring the curse. This means that as Paul writes this, Israel was under a curse. As was the rest of the world, the Gentiles, for a different reason. But regarding Israel, um, one writer put it this way. If Israel were to stay under that curse forever, as appeared inevitable, because if they're following the law, you're under a curse. Granted that nobody in Israel did in fact abide by everything written in the Torah, then the promises could never be released into the wider world. And Israel itself could never be renewed. In other words, the promise made to Abraham could not be fulfilled. Because here in the middle of the road, the road that God wants the Gentiles to take, the road of faith, is Israel broken down under a curse and there seems to be no solution to the problem. And as long as they're blocking the road, Gentiles, that's us, are not going to be able to follow Abraham on the road of faith. But then we have verse number 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. If you were to ask the average Christian or someone who knows something about theology or the Bible, why did the Messiah become a curse for us? You would probably get something like, well, he became a curse so that we would be freed from the curse and we could spend eternity with God. Paul goes in an entirely different direction. But we'll get to that in a minute. First things first. What is the curse of the law? Well, that's verse number 10. If you look back at verse number 10, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Okay, that's the curse of the law. When you fail to keep the commandments, God's personal reaction against your sin is a curse. That's what's come on you. Secondly, how did or when did the Messiah, the Christ, become a curse for us? When he was crucified, when he was hung on a tree. Just a reminder, if you look back at verse number one, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. This is the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus being hung on a tree. How is that a curse? Well, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 21, we read, 
if a man is guilty of a capital offense, I'm sorry, if a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. A criminal was hanged because he had broken the law, and breaking the law brought both curse and punishment. What Paul intends is not, I think, that a man is cursed by God just because he is hanged. But in fact, death was the outward sign of God's curse on that person because they had broken God's law. In a very real sense, this is a foreboding, a foreshadowing of the coming of the Messiah and his death on the cross. Messiah who was crucified by the Romans hung on a tree. As I've said, Paul goes in a different direction than we might expect. What would seem natural to us. Look at verse number 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Okay, this is the historical scene that Paul is painting for us. We have Israel, the Jews. They are the physical descendants of Abraham. They have failed to follow the path of faith that Abraham walked. They have failed to be people of faith and trust in God. Instead, they have opted for another path, the road of the curse. They have chosen to try to live by keeping God's law. They cannot do this, as we've seen. Their failure brings the curse. So that's the Jewish side of the painting, if you wish. The Gentiles, the all the peoples of the earth in Genesis 12.3, are also on the road to curse as those who do things contrary to God's law. You might say, well, wait a minute, they don't have the law. Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 2. People have an innate sense. It's written on their heart. People know that there is such a thing as right or wrong. And even though they may not have the law of God, they have their own law. And ironic, it's an irony of ironies, they break their own law. That is to say, they say, this is what a good person does, this is what a bad person does, and yet they find themselves doing what a bad person does, what they say a bad person does. By the way, this is a side note, we saw this in the series on exile, that both the Jews and the Gentiles were in exile at the coming of Jesus. The Jews were in exile from the land, from Babylon. Now, they had been taken to Babylon, and after 70 years they came back. But hundreds of years later, when Jesus comes into the world, the Jews still see themselves as being in exile. They are under the Romans, under foreign domination. They have not received the things that the the prophets promised them. The Messiah has not come to free them from their exile. The Gentiles are also in exile. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. The Gentiles were still in exile, in exile from the Garden of Eden. When God kicked us out in Adam and Eve and blocked the way and said, you cannot come back on your own terms, the Gentiles are in exile from the presence of God. So both the Jews and the Gentiles are in need of this Messiah that will somehow end exile and clear the path for them to walk the road of faith. 
When Jesus came into the world, the Jews were being oppressed by the Romans. And the symbol of that oppression in the first century was the cross. The cross was used by the Romans to execute tens of thousands. Jesus, as Israel's Messiah, took on Israel's curse on himself and was put on a cross. Literally, historically, not some abstraction, some theological idea. This is Jesus of Nazareth on the cross in the place of his people. And when he died on the cross, he removed the roadblock that the Jews had put there by saying, you've got to keep the law, you've got to keep the law. Jesus got rid of that roadblock. And the cherubim that are keeping us from the tree of life, he got rid of that as well. And now both Jews and Gentiles can come into the presence of God. Exile is over. And we can come into a new relationship with God. Israel is not pushed aside, you know, the stampede of the Gentiles coming into the church. Israel is still a part of the picture. What Israel needed, according to the prophets, was for the covenant to be renewed, for there to be a new covenant, for God to pour out his spirit on Israel and enable them to believe, like Abraham, and to join those on the road of faith. This is a passage I've read many times in the last few years from Jeremiah 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. And this is what Jesus accomplished. Jesus the Messiah. And how did he do this? Look again at verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Curses everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. It goes back to the promise made to Abraham centuries before, that all peoples on earth would be blessed through him. And Abraham believed God. He walked down that road, the road of faith. But Israel, at least some of them, chose to follow another road, believing themselves capable of keeping God's law. They chose the road of the curse. They saw it as the road of life. It was, in fact, the road of death. I don't know if you remember the prayer of confession that we prayed earlier, that far too often we choose death over life. This is what it means to be human. Jesus the Messiah came to free Israel from that curse by becoming a curse. And in doing this, he opened the door for us, for Gentiles, to receive the blessings promised to Abraham, to walk by God's grace in the road of faith, and to receive the promise of the Spirit. This is what Paul preached. I don't know if you've noticed, I 
I have noticed that as I've prepared, Paul in this book talks a lot about the spirit. I think far more than many Christians are comfortable with. But for Paul, you can't say, well, here's the gospel over here and here's the Holy Spirit over here. For Paul, they must go together. And when one believes the gospel, one receives the spirit. When one accepts the gospel, one accepts the spirit. The men from Jerusalem, I think they have nothing to say about the spirit of God. They don't talk about the spirit coming and living within you. They talk about you keeping God's law. And so they come up, they basically follow Paul wherever he goes and try to confuse and to disturb the Gentiles and say, what are you doing on this road? This is not the right way. You need to come over here with us because we are the people of God. We're Israel, God's chosen ones. This is the road we're taking and we don't know what Paul's, well, we know what Paul's been telling you and that's not right. You need to come over here with us. Paul writes this letter to show the falseness of their position and their belief. He wants to correct the the thinking of the Galatians and bring them back to the right way. I don't know much about cars, um, very little in fact, but I do know that in the past I've had cars that have tended to pull to one way. That I don't know if the tires are out of balance or something, but somehow you, the car just, if you let go of the wheel, it begins to go either to the right or to the left. Um, I think that's the way we are as human beings. We tend to pull toward the road of the curse, toward death and not life. Even when we become the children of God, when we put our faith in Jesus, we trust him as the Messiah, the one who became a curse to redeem us from the curse, we still find ourselves pulling over to the wrong path. Apart from the Spirit of God on our own, yeah, we will end up in the ditch or worse, on the road of the curse. Paul writes this to these Galatian believers and says, listen, if you follow the law, you will be cursed because you can't keep the law. But if you follow Abraham, the man of faith, this is what God has intended centuries ago. This is the way God's people are to live. As I said at the beginning, perhaps I overdo or oversell the idea of the story. But I find it interesting that Paul has told his story. He has told the Galatians story. He has told Abraham's story. In many ways, he has told the story of the curse, what it means to be under a curse. What I would ask you before we leave today is, what is your story? What is your story? When you tell the story of who you are before God, what is your story? Is it, well, I'm a pretty good person when I get to heaven. Uh, I think I've done more good things than bad things. Or do you say, I put my faith in Christ, but you know, I also went to church every Sunday and I also did this. There is that tendency not to say, I trust in Christ alone, but the, the wheel keeps pulling to the side. And we keep trying to say, I did this, I had a part in this, rather than trusting God and trusting in Jesus the Messiah. The Lord willing, next week we will continue in chapter 3 as Paul then gets into the story of Moses.
and the giving of the law. Let's pray together. Father, living when and where we do, and I think for some of us, because of our education, we want Paul to get to the point. Um, not real, really comfortable with the idea of stories, that that's for children. And yet this is how you have chosen to reveal yourself. Through your interactions with people. And so when we read about something like a curse, this is not merely a legal term or a theological term. This is something quite personal. And it tells a story of your personal reaction against sin. And when we think of Jesus the Messiah, we should think of his story, that you sent your son into the world to redeem us from the curse. I ask that by your spirit, each one of us would think through today and in the days to come. What is our story? In what are we putting our trust and our confidence? Do we notice the tendency in our lives to veer away from life and head toward death? To trust in ourselves rather than you? May your spirit bring these things to our minds in the coming days. I thank you for the opportunity to gather together with your people to worship you. We pray for those that aren't with us because of illness, for the Simons and the Shriners, that you would touch them for Tom and Anne as they're in Romania, that you would bring them back to us safely. Pray for each one here as we walk through the world in the coming week. Pray for wisdom, for patience and strength. May we be lights in a world of darkness. I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.